Thank you for reading, and welcome back to Annie and the rest of the Czech Republic mission team. We're glad you made it back, and we hope that your luggage arrived with you. You know that on their trip, I think there were two pieces of luggage that didn't show up until two days before they came home. <laughs> so, welcome back. Thank you for for serving on our behalf. We continue our series in the Psalms uh, this summer, and uh, we're going to spell summer P-S-U-M-M-E-R. Thank you, Jim, for laughing. Appreciate that. Um, But I wanted to remind you, one of the reasons that I think it's important for us to spend time in the Psalms together uh, is... Because I want to encourage you to use the Psalms to in, enrich, uh, to inspire, to inform your prayer life. Uh, use these prayers, use these hymns, these songs uh, to help prompt you to pray. Um, and so, as I think about studying these Psalms and, and preaching them, uh, it's uh, my purpose to help you study the psalm a little bit, soak in it, and help you see Jesus in it, so that when you go back to it, you will remember these themes, you will uh, remember these things, and let them help you pray and to seek his face. Um, And while I'm at it, I I just want to thank you again for the privilege that I have to get to study and preach God's Word, every week. Wow. It is so rich, and it's so good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we have, that we actually have your Word um, written in our hands, um, that you have preserved it through the years Uh, by the power of your spirit, and that you've allowed us to have it in our own language. Um, Father, thank you. And even now, as we spend some time soaking in Psalm 27, uh, would you, by your spirit, um, increase our confidence in Christ? Um, We ask that you would increase our confidence in Jesus, and then we seek after it now, even as we study together. So so come, Spirit, uh, do this in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've always loved Psalm 27. It's one of your favorites, as we did the survey a little while ago, and Psalm 27 was one of the uh, most frequently uh, asked for psalms, but when I was in college, back in, back in those days, I don't know if some of you remember, it was, it was uh, cool to have a life verse. Remember that? Anybody have a life verse back in the day? Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Maybe it's just something we did at Bryan College. Anyway, um, my life verse, and I don't know 
how I found it, where it came from, how God put it on my heart, but Psalm 27, 8 was my life verse in college and has always been uh, since then um, an encouragement and a challenge to me. It says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, I seek. Um, but I, I have to admit to you, as I've studied Psalm 27 again, that there's something that bothers me about it more than a little. Um, and I think, as I've thought about what bothers me, uh, I think, is the confidence that David has. Um, there's fears and anxiety swirling all around, but he has this rock-solid confidence, this rock-solid trust in God when all around him is sinking sand. And Psalm 27 is uh, one of the group of psalms that scholars call the psalms of confidence. Um, you'll remember that the Hebrew way of looking at life was to see life as a pilgrimage, life as a journey um, to the house of the Lord. And on that journey, they met many trials and tribulations, dangers, toils, snares, all those things. Um, and so this confidence in the Lord comes up in a lot of the Psalms. Psalm 23 that we looked at two weeks ago and that these guys sang for us this morning is a Psalm of confidence. Um, some others are Psalm 62, Psalm 91, which I believe we'll look at later uh, this summer, Psalm 121. Um, these are all Psalms of confidence. But, but if you're like me, I read some of these and I, I think, I don't have that kind of confidence. And I think that's maybe why I'm drawn to them, because I, I want that confidence in God. I want to be uh, confidently uh, trusting him. Um, but listen for a minute to David's confidence in Psalm 27 and, and see if you can relate to my struggle with it. He begins Psalm 23 with an exclamation of his confidence in God, and he ends Psalm 27 with, uh, an exhortation to himself to continue to be confident in God. Here, here's the exclamation of confidence in God in verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Yet I will trust, even in the midst of this. So that's his exclamation at the beginning. He closes with an exhortation to himself, I believe, um, to be continually confident in God. In verses 13 and 14, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Um, I don't know about you, but so, I, oftentimes I'm not that confident. Um, and I think maybe it's because, honestly, you look around sometimes at your life and the world and you say, is there much evidence to support such confidence in God? I mean, look at what's going around. Now, David sounds confident here, but 
just by admitting that he's trusting God in the midst of things that are fearful, he's saying, yeah, there, there are things to fear. He wouldn't even be talking about this if he didn't have fears to face. He says, evildoers assailed me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes. He says, even though an army encamp against him, that happened to him. The war arise against me. This, this happened to him. Not only uh, the surrounding nations that surrounded Israel, and he's the king of Israel, and so they're out to get him, but more than that, uh, his own boss, King Saul, was out to kill him. And uh, he sent men to watch David's house at one point so that they could kill him when he came out. David's own son was out to kill him. He gathered an army against his own father to try to overthrow his kingdom. Uh, Absalom. Absalom took David's concubines and sported himself in public. He was out to get his father. David shouldn't have had concubines to begin with, obviously. So he kind of deserved some of that. <laughs> but then his own wife, Michael, uh, despised him when she saw him uh, dancing before the Ark of the, of the Covenant and rejoicing and worshiping God. It, the Bible says she watched from a window and despised him in her heart. So David's adversaries and enemies are, are more than just national. They're, they're personal, relational. Um, he has fears and anxieties. So I'm asking you, what are your fears and anxieties? this morning. Reflect as we, as we talk this morning, as I talk, and um, think about what are the fears and anxieties that you're, you're facing? And are they circumstantial? Yeah, there, there could be some of those things that are physical losses or, or needs or whatever that cause you fear and anxiety, but are they personal and relational? Uh, I would imagine that those are the fears and anxieties that have the most power in our lives, that our closest relationships are in trouble. But David said, in the midst of all that, yet I will trust, yet I will be confident. Um, and, and then how at the end of the psalm did David say this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Did he not see what was happening in the land in which he was living? Did he not see the injustice taking place? Did he not see the results of his own sin and its impact on his family and his nation? So how could he be so confident that he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? And how could he tell himself at the end of the psalm to wait for the Lord, to be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. What, what enabled his heart to rest when his world was a mess? And, and that's the question I have for, for me, for you. What enables our hearts to rest when our worlds are a mess? Um, we have legitimate fears and anxieties and worries. Um, some of them have nothing to do with anything we've done, like some of David's did, but some of them, if I'm honest, have everything to do with what I've done. I've brought them on myself. 
So, uh, I want us to think together, where does David get this confidence at the beginning and end of the psalm? We're going to look at the middle of the psalm, and uh, I want us to notice two things about how David approaches God in this psalm that I think would give us some insight into why he has such confident trust in God, and then how he feeds and nurtures that confident trust in God. So first, let's think about why does David have such confidence in God? There's there's something that David knows about God. First, notice what David calls God throughout this psalm. Uh, Thirteen times in this psalm, you'll see the word, the phrase, the Lord, and Lord is in capitals. Um, and you've heard, I'm sure, that, that in our Old Testament, as we re- read our English translations, that the Lord, when it's in capitals, is referring to the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. Um, this is the name that God revealed to Moses from the burning bush, just before he sent Moses to deliver or save his people from bondage in Egypt. Uh, you'll remember that story. Moses uh, said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and, they, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to rescue you, and they say, well, what's his name? What am I to tell them? And God said to Moses, my name is, I am who I am. God said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say to this people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So David repeatedly, 13 times in 14 verses, calls God, refers to God as Yahweh, the God who uh, delivers and saves his people from bondage. But then secondly, notice how David describes God. In verse 1, he says, the Lord is, the, is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And because of the parallelism in Hebrew poetry, light and stronghold are actually both metaphors that describe God as the God of salvation, as the one who saves and delivers. Light saves from darkness. A stronghold saves from danger. And then, in verse 9, David again addresses God as, O God of my salvation. So, David is calling God by God's saving and delivering name, Yahweh, and he's describing God as the one who personally saves and delivers him. The Lord is my salvation. God of my salvation, he calls him. So one reason why uh, why David is confident in God in the face of fear um, is because he knows that this is the God who has saved his people in the past, and this is the God who has saved him. David puts his confidence, his trust, in the God who saves, the God of his salvation. Now, fast forward to Matthew chapter 1. The angel says to Joseph in a dream... Uh, Mary is going to have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The word, the name Jesus, is the Greek form of Joshua. Uh, Joshua literally means uh, 
the God who saves, or the God of salvation. Jesus, uh, the shorter Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Um, David's confidence came from knowing the God who is called Yahweh saves. Now, David didn't know. He knew that there would be someone from his line one day who would be the Savior, but he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. But we know, we know that uh, the gospel is the good news that Jesus, Yahweh saves, came to save his people from their sin. And so whether David would call it this or not, he had gospel confidence. He had confidence in the good news that Yahweh saves. But I think Psalm 27 also shows us uh, not only that David knew that this was the God of his salvation, um, but it also shows us how David grew in his gospel confidence. So, if in verses 1 through 3, we find David exclaiming, yet I will be confident, and then in, at the end, in 13 and 14, David is exhorting himself to, be, to continue in his confidence, then the middle, verses 4 to 12, show us how David is encouraging his own confidence to grow and to deepen. They show us how he fans his confidence in the flame. And so how does he do this? How does David encourage his own gospel confidence? Well, there's something that David desires and something he does that cultivates his confidence in the God of his salvation. Um, Verses 4 and 6 say this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. One thing I have asked and that I seek after, he says. What is David's one thing? Well, he says... It's to dwell in God's house. It's to be in the place where God is present. David wasn't a priest, so he couldn't live in the temple, uh, literally, physically live in there. So he's talking about more than that. He wants to be in God's presence. He wants to be in the presence of the God who saves. But I want to drill down a little deeper into this one thing that David wants. David wants to be in God's presence, yes, but why? What does he want to do there? He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To gaze and to inquire as he dwells in the house of the Lord. I found Tim Keller very helpful uh, on this. Uh, Listen to what he says about these verses. 
Keller says, when David says, the one thing I want is to dwell in your house and gaze on your beauty and seek you in your temple, that's the secret right there. What David is saying is, listen to this, my fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joy. I'll say that again. My fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. Keller goes on, if the thing that is my greatest joy is God, I will live without fear. If my one thing, the thing I most want is God, I'm safe. He goes on, he says, when David says, I'll be safe in your dwelling place, in verse 5, I'll be safe in the tabernacle and tent of God. David is not thinking physically. He's not so stupid as to think that these people who are after them with their real knives and their real swords, uh, that if he runs into the tabernacle, somehow, if they come in after him in an Indiana Jones style of a scene, the Ark of the Covenant will zap all the bad guys. Keller says, that's not what he's thinking. What he's saying is, I'm only safe, not when I'm physically inside the dwelling of the tabernacle or the temple. I'm only safe when you are the one thing I want most of all. Then I'm safe. Again, my fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. If my one thing, the thing I most want, is God, I'm safe. Permit me to give you a little more Keller on this. He says, in other words, when good things become the one thing we have to have in order to be happy, when the good things become the one thing, we gaze on them, we seek them, we gaze on their beauty, we adore them, and we believe we cannot receive life joyfully unless we have those things. So, now this is me. We have to ask ourselves, what is my fear or my anxiety saying to me? How is it acting like a warning light on the dashboard of my life, telling me that there's something wrong under the hood, something wrong in my heart? How have I made a good thing my one thing? And am I afraid to lose that one thing? Because, to be because what I'm afraid of is that if I lose that one thing, I lose it all. It reminded me of what Jesus once told his disciples. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority also to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he says this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, Jesus said, you are of more value than many sparrows. What, what is Jesus getting at? Jesus is saying that there is something greater to fear than losing your body, than losing something physical. What we should fear more than losing anything or anyone else is, is losing the loving, saving presence of God forever and being left only with the wrathful, condemning presence of God. Hell. 
What we should fear more than losing anyone or anything else is losing the loving, saving presence of God forever. So fear not, Jesus says. If not one sparrow is forgotten by God, if every hair on your hair is, head is known by God, then there's no way you will be forgotten by him if you're his. He knows you. God himself is the one thing that cannot be taken from you. There's no enemy strong enough, not even death itself, to take away this one thing, this God who knows and loves you. And David knows this, but he also knows that he has to remember this. And so there are two ways that he reminds himself that the God of his salvation is the one thing he cannot lose, no matter what else is taken from him. He says, Dwell in the house of the Lord to do what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To gaze. Gaze on the beauty of the God who saved, is saving, and will save you. Delight in the God of your salvation. So what happened in the temple? The first thing we think of, it's sacrifices. We think of blood everywhere. We think of smoke rising constantly. You know, the people who lived in the city or the people who camped around the tabernacle, they were constantly smelling the smoke of the sacrifice that was made for sin. Blood was shed for sin, so that sinful people could live in relationship with and be in the presence of a holy God. That's what was happening in the temple or the tabernacle. And also the glory of God rested on the tabernacle and the temple. Um, but for us folks, we've got to remember, Jesus is the temple. He said so in John chapter 2. He said, destroy this temple and then three days I will raise it. Of course, all the Pharisees were like, what's he talking about? He's talking about the temple. Kill him. Jesus, uh, John said, was talking about himself, his own body. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where sinful people can meet with the holy God. Jesus is the sacrifice whose blood was shed so that God would treasure you more than millions of sparrows. Jesus is where we see the beauty and glory of God who rescues rebels and makes them sons and daughters. Jesus is where you want to dwell. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, which, by the way, should tell you that if Satan's number one strategy is to blind our minds and to keep us from seeing the light of the glory of Christ, then seeing the light of the glory of Christ is of primary importance. It's one thing, the one thing. Paul goes on, but God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord is my light and my salvation. If you want to gaze at the beauty of God, you've got to gaze at Jesus. You must seek the glory of God in the face of Jesus, who loves you and gave himself for you. So how do you do this? Well, David gets practical. And he explains how 
how to gaze upon the beauty of God in verses 7 to 10. And so he, he prays, Hear, O Lord, when I cry out. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says of you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Pray. That's every preacher's favorite application. Do it. This is how you grow your gospel confidence. You you say, hear, O Lord, when I cry to you, be gracious to me and answer me, please. I, I need you. Verse 8, seek FaceTime with him. This is about a face-to-face relationship with Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Seek him. Pursue him. Go after him. Make time. Set aside time. Set aside energy to do this. Respond to his call. Seek my face is, is in the plural. He's He's saying that God is constantly calling out to his people, seek my face, come find me, seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart, he says. Respond to that call. He's calling now. He's calling in the preaching of his word. He's calling in this table in a few minutes. He's calling when you read his Bible. He's calling when you meet with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Seek my face, respond to him. And say, I'll I'll do it by your grace. Verses 9 and 10, um, when he says, Don't hide your face from me, God. Don't turn me away in anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. He understands. He deserves God to hide his face from him. He deserves to be cast off. He deserves to be forgotten. He deserves for his own parents to forsake him. But then he remembers the gospel. He remembers his own sin, but then he remembers the gospel, the good news that the Lord will take me in. The Lord takes in sinners. So he remembers why God should turn his face, but then he remembers why he won't, because he's the God of his salvation. Preach the gospel to yourself. And the other way David kept his focus on God, besides gazing on him in those ways, uh, is he inquired. Um, and the Hebrew word there, to inquire, it means to seek counsel. He wants to not only delight in the God of his salvation, but he wants to discern the will of this God who has saved him, so that he might do it. And then verses 11 and 12 explain practically what that looks like. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Three things there. Teach me your way. Do you have a heart that wants to learn from Jesus? To learn about Jesus in his word? Teach me. Inquire. Teach me, God. Do you have a teachable heart? Do you have a heart that longs to learn 
Ask him. Then he says, lead me on a level path. Do you have a heart that submits to the leadership of Jesus, that longs to be led by him? Or are you the captain of your own fate? Do you call the shots? Do you have a heart that, that submits to Jesus and says, lead me, God, lead me on your path? And then he says, give me not up to my adversaries. I thought about this, and I wondered, do, you, do we have hearts that are aware of the spiritual battle that's going on in us and around us? Do we have hearts that are aware of the spiritual battle that's going on in us and around us? Ask for and seek after a learning heart and a submissive heart and an aware heart. Then you will discern the will of God, this one who is your one thing, when you love and learn and live in the story of Jesus. This is where you inquire. This is where you inquire about the true temple, Jesus Christ. And before I close, I noticed this one thing too. Notice that David said, one thing I ask that I will seek after. There's an asking, there's, there's a desiring and an asking God, but then there's, there's his own seeking after. There's something he's doing. And so I want to encourage you, as you're seeking it, you must ask God. You must ask God to show you his face to show you his beauty. The reason you must ask is because only God can do what needs to be done to grow your gospel confidence. You're absolutely dependent on the Spirit of God to do this in you. But even though you're absolutely dependent on him, you must also, you must also seek after growth in gospel confidence. You also need to engage your own heart and head and hands in the means that God has given to grow your gospel confidence. The means. These things. You must participate with God in this as you depend on him to do it in you. I think Paul said, work out your own salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. Finally, gazing on the beauty of Jesus and inquiring to learn and to submit to what he wants for your life. Well, this is, this is what it looks, to wait, looks like to wait for him. At the end, David says, wait for the Lord. He says it twice. And that word translated wait for is different from the word that means wait on, to wait on someone, to serve them. This is wait for. And it reminded me of the story that David read a while ago of Mary and Martha. <coughs> Martha was waiting on Jesus. Mary was waiting for Jesus. And Jesus said to Martha, you're anxious. See, that was David's problem. Too, my problem too. You're anxious about many things. But Mary has chosen the good portion, the one thing. Jesus is echoing all the Old Testament passages where the greatest possession 
that anyone could have is close fellowship with the Lord as one's portion in life. And so while Martha chose to busy herself with waiting on Jesus, Mary chose to wait for Jesus, to gaze and to inquire, to seek his face. And her one thing, Jesus said, will not be taken away from her. Neither now nor in all eternity. And so, my friends, Jesus is calling you this morning. Seek my face. Seek me. Seek my face. How are we going to respond to him? How are we going to respond? Give me grace to seek your face, Lord Jesus. I want you to be my one thing. Because you're the one thing that can never, ever be taken away from me. Oh, Father, give us your grace. We ask you, even as we, even now, participate in seeking after you as our one thing. We ask your spirit to come. And even as we come to this table where the beauty of Jesus is on display as the sacrifice for sinners so that they can know their holy God, would you help us by your spirit to see his beauty so that we might gaze on it and grow from it. Lord God, as we consider this broken bread and this poured cup, and we remember your life-giving love, we pour out our broken hearts, and we cry out to you for your sufficient and sustaining grace. And we ask that you would take these common elements of, of bread in this cup, and you would set them apart so that they would help us to feed on you and drink of you by faith so that you may sustain us with your sufficient grace this morning. And we remember how on the night Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. When you eat it, remember me. And we remember how that same night after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, remember me. And so, Father, we ask, Lord Jesus, we ask, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause us to remember, cause our gospel confidence to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus because we have fed on him and drunk from him this morning. Would you do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.